As you're seated, if you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's sitting there beside you on the end of each pew. In that Bible, I believe it's on page 940. And today we will be looking at Romans 2, verses 17 through 24, as we continue uh, our detailed journey through the book of Romans. Let's read that together. Romans 2, verse 17. Paul writes to the church in Rome, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This week, I came across a news story on the internet. It had the headline, Missing Drunk Man Spent Hours Helping a Search Party Look for Himself. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? You can just picture that. This guy was totally on board with the search. But he didn't really know what they were there to do. He, he was looking for somebody who fit that description, but he never stopped to consider, do I fit that description? He was looking and looking, but he never turned and looked in a mirror. And when we see a situation like that, it is funny. And yet, it might be us. We might be the one who is looking all around trying to see who fits this description of the sinner that the Bible is talking about. And yet, who is it? It's you. It's me. We are called to take a Bible and to turn it as a mirror on our own souls before we use it as a magnifying glass on the watching world around us, in the pews, in the streets, in the world. Now, where are we in the Bible? We're in Romans 2. This whole chapter that we're in the middle of is showing that being Jewish does not exempt anyone from needing to be saved by the gospel instead of being saved by the law. Paul is setting up uh, the, the church in Rome as they read this, and I shouldn't just say the church in Rome. I think he's very aware that he is writing scripture that's going to endure past this. He's setting us up as he's about to tell us just the depths of the details of the gospel and what it is that God has done for us by the blood of Christ he is setting us up in the second half of chapter 1 all the way through the middle of chapter 3 to say very, very clearly, it does not matter who you are. You need the gospel. And apart from Christ, you are doomed. So we have been talking about how doomed people are for kind of a while now because the Bible started talking about that all the way at chapter 1, verse 18, and at that whole rest of the chapter 1 was specifically talking about everybody in the world, namely Gentiles, that this is the path of all mankind. Even those who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus, it goes through and exposes how all mankind are lost in their sins and in rebellion against God, know something about his commands and yet don't follow them, know something about his grandeur and yet do not bow to worship him but rebel against him and go deeply into those things. And how was chapter 2 introduced? Well, it was introduced this way, turning from the Gentiles to the Jewish nation because this was a big question as Christianity was getting started. Is there a difference in how God is dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles now that Jesus has come, now that the Jewish Savior has come? Oh, all kinds of questions in that. Did they, they wondered, did, do Gentile people, do they need to become Jewish in order to receive the salvation of the Jewish Messiah whose name is Jesus? The answer to that is no, they didn't need to. 
That's answered pretty clearly in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere. There was the question of, well, if, why is it that so many of the people who are coming to the Jewish Savior are Gentile people? Well, that's going to be addressed in Romans also. There's the question of why is it or, or how is it that, that Jews and Gentiles who both trust in the same Jewish Savior, how are they supposed to interact? Should they have separate churches? Should they have separate practices within the same church? All kinds of things that are bubbling up. But the big question in these chapters is, is it really true that the Jewish people needed a Savior from their sins? Now, they knew that the whole Gentile world needed a Savior from their sins. But they wondered, do we need a Savior from our sins? We already have God. We already have the law. We already have circumcision. But do you know what the angel announced when Jesus was about to be born? He said, he will save his people, not from Roman oppression. He will save his people from their sins. So what chapter 2 is doing is it is making it absolutely clear that the Jewish Savior whose name is Jesus came to save people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and that includes the very Jewish people that he came through and was a part of and came, it says, first two. But in chapter 2, as it turns to the Jewish people, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Which leads us also to need to say right here, these things that are spoken to the Jewish people do not apply only to the Jewish people. You see what we've already done. Maybe this has already happened in your mind as I was telling these things. Maybe you have already at this point said to yourself, ah, when he first read that passage... I was a little bit worried that it might expose my hypocrisy. But now that I hear that this was primarily written to Jewish people, and because I am not Jewish in my heritage, maybe this is not really about me. Well, that misses the whole point of what's going on here. The whole point of what's going on here is let's look and see that every single individual human soul is a soul that fell into sin in Adam and a soul that must be redeemed by Jesus. It must be by the gospel. It can never be by the law. It can never be by the rules. It can never be what, by what you do. And so as we see this, even if you would have a temptation to judge these people over here who are very unholy, or these people over here who appear to be very holy, but you know secretly they're hypocrites, oh, that's the tendency of our heart to say, I see those people, I see those people, I know what's wrong with everybody around me, but then not to examine yourself. And this is what it's saying. It's saying, turn, examine yourself, look at yourself. This applies not just to the Jewish people. This applies to anybody who assumes that they are right with God because of their family upbringing, because of their good works, because of their religious practices, because of their great knowledge of the Bible, because of anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life and perfect sacrifice on the cross for us and his resurrection from the dead. So all, both Jew and Gentile, under, are, are under the law, will be judged by the same law, will be judged without partiality. That's what he's just gotten done saying in chapter 2 that we've been through in the last couple of weeks. And now in the rest of the chapter... In these last two paragraphs of chapter 2, he turns to two things specifically that these religious Jewish people would hold up as reasons why perhaps they didn't actually need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first of those reasons is that they already possessed the law that God gave straight to them. And the second reason is because they already possess circumcision, the mark of the covenant that God had given with them. And Paul is going to say, Neither one of those things can save you. Neither one. It is only by the gospel, only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, come, that someone can be justified, can receive the free gift of God's righteousness through the gospel, rather than being under the wrath of God, which is the difference between Romans 1.17 and Romans 1.18, if you 
Right, write that down. Look that up later, all right? But let's look at what it says here. When, when we are in this paragraph, it's dealing with the law, with the objection, perhaps I don't really need the gospel if I already have the law of God to deal with my sin. Now, the law is good. I want to state that very, very clearly. God did not get anything wrong in any word that he has ever spoken. When God gave the law in the Old Testament, he did it perfectly. Jesus said that not one jot or tittle would pass away from it. He was saying it is perfectly inerrant down to the very letter. It is the word of God, and it's good. The law is good in that moral law that's summarized in the Ten Commandments that we believe is printed in some way on every human heart in the form of a conscience. The law was perfectly good even in what Jesus fulfilled and did away with, the ceremonial laws like sacrificing bulls and the civil laws like the, the particulars of how to judge cases within the nation of Israel. Those things are no longer in place now that Christ has come, but they were still good and perfect and pointing forward to this Savior, Jesus. The moral law, of course, of the Ten Commandments, we believe, is still standing and still, uh, still the perfect guide for how it is that we are commanded by God to live. But in all of this, the law is good, but the problem with the law being good is that mankind is not good. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is the sinners that the law is given to. And so if we would come to God and try to be saved by our adherence to the law, what the law is going to do is not save us. It's not going to show that we added up this many good points as opposed to this many bad points and these outweighed this one. It's going to show that we're criminals, that we're lawbreakers. That's all that the law ultimately on the day of judgment will do for you. It will not cause you to stand righteous before God. It will cause you to be judged a criminal because you have broken at least one point of the law. I would guess all of them, really, but the Bible says if you've broken one point, then you've broken them all. So those who rely on the law are not going to be saved by the law, but judged by the law. Just thinking through the, the Jewish context of this, there would have been a, a thinking among the Jewish people, we didn't need to be saved from our sins because God has already put the law in place to deal with it. He's given it as a guide for what we ought to do, and he's even given it, he's even given the laws and the regulations for what to do when we know that we have sinned against him. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, you read the book of Leviticus, all kinds of stuff about how exactly these sacrifices were to go, God laid it all out. But you know what they didn't realize? They didn't realize every bit of this was pointing to the Savior who was predicted all the way from Genesis 3.15 forward. You can't be saved by going through the religious actions. Those cannot save you from your sins. Only Christ, the Savior, can save you from your sins. So what this passage does, we, I should probably start talking about the verses. What this passage does is it exposes the inherent hypocrisy that we are born with. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether raised in the church, whether not, whether born in America or born in Indonesia or anywhere in between, human beings are not only sinners, not only have those tendencies to break God's law, but also have the tendencies to be self-righteous sinners who think that for whatever reason, they themselves, I myself, am exempt from whatever rule we know that God has for us. But he says here in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Now all of these things are good things in various ways but are bad things apart from faith in Christ. I'm going to tell you about the good and the bad in each. It says if you call yourself a Jew. And who is he talking about here? If you call yourself a Jew, it is a singular pronoun there. You, singular, call yourself a Jew, and you wonder, who, who's, Paul, who, who's the person that Paul's talking to? 
Well, this is, this is a style of writing. It's the same style that he started chapter 2 with. There you ha- therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. It's a style of writing that we call diatribe. Diatribe does not mean an angry rant, at least not in this context. It, it, it's an ancient style of writing where they set up an imaginary hypothetical opponent in order to uh, preemptively answer the objections to the argument. So, so you see this uh, several times throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament, is that he's having this sort of like an imaginary debate back and forth with someone who's not really there, um, which seems a little strange. You hear this every once in a while. Somebody will say something like, uh, did I eat breakfast this morning? Yes, I did. And, and on and on like that. That's a diatribe style. That's what he's doing. There's not an actual individual he's talking to. He is saying, uh, he, he is pointing, he's saying, those of you who would call yourselves Jews and rely on the law, and you would say, I don't need Jesus because of this. That's who he's addressing. Now, in a way, call yourself a Jew, that is a good thing. Somebody who is willing to publicly say, I identify with the people uh, that, that God covenanted with all the way from the time of Abraham forward for thousands of years. Well, that is a good thing. Not to be ashamed of the people. Not to be ashamed of the God of the people. But where is the bad thing coming in? Well, assuming that you are part of God's people. You know what he's going to, to say at the end of this chapter in verses 28 and 29? He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Or the way that Jesus put this to a great, well-respected Jewish leader in Jerusalem whose name was Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So yes, you can call yourself all kinds of things. You can call yourself Jewish. You can call yourself Christian. You can call yourself Baptist. But I wonder, are you in God's sight? There's all kinds of things you can consider yourself. But Jesus says, you must be born again. It is good to identify with God and his people but are you doing it in faith in Christ? Is it real? Then he says, and rely on the law. Now, in a, in a way, there is something good about that because somebody who, who loves God's law, who wants to study what God would say, what is required of God in his word, that's a good thing. Sometimes we talk about the Bible as an instruction manual for life. And in a way it is because it, it contains God's law. The rules that God has for us in the Bible are an instruction manual for us for life. But if you rely on the instructions in the Bible, you're only taking the law and you're missing the gospel. It's good to love God's rules, but it is deadly to rely on them. Why do I say that? Because it says that in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You can't rely on the law unless you do every bit of it, which you don't. Only Jesus did that. Rely on the law and then boast in God. Now that's a good thing. We're not going to stop somebody from boasting in God. uh, Boasting in ourselves is sinful. But the Bible says, yes, let's boast in the Lord. In Jeremiah 9, it says, uh, it says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That is a good thing. Not to be ashamed of God, to, to boast in the greatness of God and not in the greatness of ourselves. But where does it go wrong? Why is he setting this hypothetical opponent up here for failure in boasting in God? Well, it's because you can boast in God and assume that you know him when you don't. You can be boasting of the very God who is your judge when you are not right with him. You can make a profession of love for God when it is not there. You can know that it would be good if I actually did love God, 
it would be good if I actually was right with God, so I'll just say it as though I were, and maybe it will become true. You can say, you can say well, I am very close to God. Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, this is a reason why they give, why they don't need the gospel. They say, well, I already am spiritual. I already feel close to God. Or people will say often, I pray all the time. I pray every day. That's a form of boasting in God. And I do hope that you'll pray all the time. But if you're not praying in faith in Jesus, he's under no obligation to hear you. Under no obligation. Or you could say, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now, I do think that it is normal when somebody actually is born again, when they actually do turn in repentance and faith to Jesus, it is normal to pray to God. Prayers of repentance and prayers of faith, that is normal, and yet there is this teaching that's been out there for a century or more that says the way you are saved is by praying this prayer. And if you have prayed this prayer, signed this card that assures you that you have eternal life, and you know what you're doing there, if somebody is not trusted in Christ and you have them sign the card that says you have eternal life no matter what because you prayed to receive Jesus, you are telling them, go and boast in God without faith in Christ. And know his will. You say, if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, and know his will. Now, knowing God's will is a good thing. Now, there's, there's aspects of God's will that we can't know. The way God puts it in Deuteronomy is that the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed are for us and our children forever. The secret things, we don't know the path that God is going to lead us down. We don't know what he has in our future. We do know some things about the future that are told us in the scriptures, but then even at that, there's many mysteries about exactly how it's going to play out. All of that is in God's hands for how his will working out in the world is going to work. But what this is talking about is God's revealed will. Sometimes we call this God's will of command. What it is that God has said, this is what I will for you. I will for you to be holy, for example. That is God's will. Your sanctification. And, and as we look at the Bible, we can see here is what God has said that we ought to do, what we ought not to do. And, and as we study it, we grow in the knowledge of his will, what it is that he would and would not have us to do. And so that's a good thing unless it's not applied by faith. If you just say to yourself, well, I know what God says ought to be done, but you do not have faith even if you're doing some things that are good on the outside. Romans 14 says that if anything that's not done in faith is sin. It's filthy rags put before God. And of course, it goes beyond that. He's about to expose the utter hypocrisy that's built into human hearts and that played out in those who would rely on the law. It's deep. He says, know his will and approve what is excellent. Now, approving what is excellent, that's good. Philippians commands us to approve what is excellent. We ought to search the scriptures and to see what is really good in God's sight, what is excellent, and to be on that side, to reason it out, to know it, to see it, to approve it, to thank God for what is good and excellent and praiseworthy. But if we're not applying that by faith, again, it's sin. You say, I know what's excellent, but why don't you get on board with what's excellent? Because you're instructed from the law. Again, that's a good thing. All these things are good in various ways. It's good to be instructed from the law. Or the way that he words it, you could even say catechized from the law, which I'm on board with. I love to, to sing the songs to, to help myself know and retain uh, the Baptist Catechism from 1695. And part of what that catechism does is it goes all the way through the entire Ten Commandments and tells you what each commandment is, tells you what's required in that commandment, it tells you what's forbidden in that commandment. I love it. I think it is good to have that driven, even if you don't like the word catechism. We all recognize that what we need to have is we need to have a solid knowledge of the Scriptures driven into our hearts. We need to be taught. And so that is a good thing, unless it's not applied by faith. You could be one who knows exactly what the law says, 
You could be one who, who is able to tell all kinds of details about what is right and what is wrong on the basis of the fifth commandment or the eighth commandment or this commandment or that commandment. But if your faith is not in Jesus, it is all fruitless. You'll be judged by it, not saved by it. And if you yourself, verse 19, are sure that you are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. Now that sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? But listen to this. Here's what it says in Isaiah 42, 6. God said to his people, to Israel, he said, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. It's applied to Israel. It's applied in a higher way, ultimately, to Christ himself. But there is something of a commission here. It's almost like it's reflecting something of the great commission that Jesus would make even clearer. Uh, that, that there is supposed to be a spreading of the knowledge of the glory of God to all nations. It's a good thing in a way. But what if it's not the seeing leading the blind, but the blind leading the blind? What if it's not those who are in light, who are giving light to the people in darkness? What if it's those who are in darkness messing with other people's darkness? He goes on and he says, you're sure that you're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. This is language that would have been sort of common in Paul's day, just describing the mission of the Jewish people to the nations. And I think what you get here is you get Paul almost moving into the sarcastic. Whenever I see the Bible getting sarcastic, I'm a little bit comforted. <laughs> because that's a familiar, probably ought not to be quite as familiar in my life as it is, but it's comforting to me. What you have here is you have Paul looking at those who would say, I know all about the Scriptures. And he's showing it is good to know all about the Scriptures, but if you're not yourself submitting to them, that is just a deadly arrogance. Now, we have to be careful there. We, as people who love the Bible, we are accused constantly in the world of being very arrogant. Because we claim to know what God actually says. We claim to know what God actually does and does not give approval to. And the world would look at that and would say, you are arrogant. The reality is that the arrogance is to look at the word of God and say, I know better than that. That's the reality. That is the true arrogance, is to dismiss the word of God and to think my way is better than that because I am enlightened beyond these ancient people. But there is still here, and it's pointed out to us, a risk of saying because I know the word of God, I am now the instructor of the blind the leader of the foolish, the instructor of the foolish, a light to those in darkness. I am the teacher of those little babies in the world. And what a downfall we can have if that's the attitude about ourselves and yet we are not submitting in faith to what God has said and just trying to apply it to others. Now, there is some thought of all these things as an excuse uh, that, that this would be evidence of being right with God because I have all these things. I have this great knowledge of the law, but it goes back to what he said in verse 1. You have no excuse. It's not an excuse before God that you know your Bible really well. It is saying that you have even less of an excuse before God. Oh, you who judges others in passing judgment, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know what he's doing. He is making it very clear. You cannot rely on anything but Jesus for your salvation. I, mean, I may say that a few more times in this sermon. That's the point here. I want you to hear it. You can't rely on that. And where does it go to? Verse 21. It goes to this. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Now, that's a hard verse. We need teachers. 
God gave teachers. He gave it as a spiritual gifting to be able to teach, to proclaim his word. He builds up his church by teaching of the Bible. But what he's getting at here is you who teach, do you teach yourself? It's possible for someone just to think, I, if I am in a teaching role where I'm well-respected and everybody sees that I know the things and I see that people's lives are changing because I'm giving them good teaching, well, I must be okay with God. Now, it's a funny thing. God's Word has a way of being effective and not coming back void even when it comes out of the mouths of hypocrites. Isn't that amazing? But that doesn't save the teacher what saves the teacher is Christ alone. Christ alone. You know, when I, what we're called to do is to take the Bible, to use it as a mirror. As I said, not a, not a magnifying glass on other people, but as a mirror on our own souls. It, it, these verses, they just remind me so much of what Jesus said back in Matthew 23 against the Pharisees. He says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. And he goes on for almost a whole chapter laying that out and digging into these Pharisees, and some of us would look at that and we would say to ourselves, go get them, Jesus. You go get those Pharisees. I know some of them. You know what the Bible says? It says that the Bible itself is a mirror on our souls. When when we read the parts of the Bible that are about those desperately lost people out there in the world who are so deeply into immorality, we're not to say, I'm glad I'm not like them. And when we read the parts of the Bible that say, these Pharisees, they load heavy burdens on people's backs, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger, I think the temptation of every Christian is to point at some preacher or some church or some person in the pew beside them and say, I know a Pharisee over there. I sure am glad I'm not like him. That's exactly the words of the Pharisees. Thank you, God, that I am not like this sinner. The Bible is a mirror on our souls, guys. We need to look at it, and especially, this is pointing out what James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Every time I read that, I just have to say to God, I have absolutely no hope apart from the cross of Christ. I know that this is true, I'm in a weird position where it's my job to teach these things. I have no hope apart from the cross of Christ. But it's not just me. It's not just those Pharisees over there. It is you. It's everybody. This is built into human hearts to judge others by standards by which we ourselves think we are exempt for our own personal purposes. Here's what, what happened in 2 Samuel 12. After, after David had committed adultery and then committed, a, committed murder to try to cover up his adultery, the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story of a man in Israel who was a rich man who had stolen a poor man's lamb and had killed it. And then it says this, David said in his anger, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then you know what the prophet Nathan said to him? You are the man. Sometimes we don't even see the hypocrisy in ourselves until the Lord graciously puts somebody in our lives to show it to us. And it might hurt, but it is a good and gracious thing from God to have that opportunity to repent. Oh, that's good. You are the man. But that takes us to the second part here. Failure to practice what you preach. Not very different from what we've been saying, but look at the second half of verse 21. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
And then he goes on and speaks of adultery and speaks of idolatry. He's laying out three of the Ten Commandments, three aspects of God's eternal moral law that is still over every single one of us that we would all affirm, no, we should not steal, we should not commit adultery, we should not worship by idols. But he says here, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? This could be in a very literal sense. Judas himself It's hard to imagine that he never preached against stealing, and yet he was stealing. One of Jesus' own disciples. We have seen in the world too many times pastors fall into disgrace, have to leave the ministry, because as they were standing up and preaching righteousness and preaching against stealing behind closed doors, they were helping themselves to the church funds. It happens. This happens in a literal sense. But it's not even just in that very direct sense of stealing things in that obvious way. Psalm 119.96 says of God's commands, Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Stealing applies to more than just walking up and taking something that's not yours or just plundering out of someone else's bank account. It has to do, for example, as God points out very clearly, in Malachi, failure to tithe. It says in Malachi, you have robbed me, every one of you. And they say, we, how have we robbed God? And he says, in tithes and offerings. I'm not saying that because we need a bunch of money. We're doing fine. God provides for this church, but what I want for you is I want you to be in obedient submission to God and giving to the first fruits of all your wealth, as it says in Proverbs 3. It may be in gambling, where you say to yourself, well, it's not really stealing if we have set up a system where we all agree that whoever wins this game will then steal from all the rest of them. You see what that is? You see what, if you, win the, if you play the lottery, you might lose and be irresponsible with your money, or you might win and found that you have gotten millions of dollars that came out of the poorest parts of the state from people who stake their hopes on maybe that ticket would come through for them, and you go off and buy a new house with their money. Hmm. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Maybe you steal by wasting time at work, robbing your employer. Maybe you steal by finding a $5 bill on the ground and thinking to yourself, it is a gift from God. Instead of, maybe there is someone around here that this belongs to that I should find. There's all kinds of ways. I I can't go on. I I had preached a whole sermon on that commandment. It's on the internet somewhere, and I could have preached 12 sermons on it. All right? But then he goes on and says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Again, this can be in just the very literal outright sense, and again, it saddens me to say we have heard of too many pastors who have fallen because of this. And who knows how many never got found out. I pity them for the day of judgment. You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? And of course, that extends, as Jesus says, to all kinds of things, as Jesus says that it's not just about the literal act, but also whoever would look upon a woman with lustful intent has already broken that commandment, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We know, for example, as we were taught in Romans chapter 1, that homosexuality is a breaking of the command not to commit adultery. But we would have to ask you who would preach against that and think to yourself to be a bold warrior in the midst of an oppositional culture. You who preach against homosexuality, do you look at pornography? You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? And then he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What does that mean? Well, obviously we are not to worship false gods which would be the first commandment. We're also not to worship the true God by way of idols and images, which is the second commandment. And this is something that within the Jewish nation was a massive problem up until the time when God dragged them into captivity in Babylon. 
And when they got brought back from captivity in Babylon, the literal sin of idolatry seems to have been something that from that point forward, the Jewish people abhorred rather than embracing. And it was common within their culture to say, those things that those pagans are doing over there, they're bowing down to statues and worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and all those things, those are abhorrent to me. But then he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, there's a few different theories about what exactly that means. Some think that that's about idolatry of the heart, which is sin. You know, this inordinate desire for things other than God. Some think that that is about withholding tithes, about robbing the temple of God, which again is sin. But I think that that word, I think what it's talking about has to do with literally robbing temples, with trying to profit from idols from literal pagan temples, that those who would preach against this would say, but there's a lot of silver in that statue, and if we melt it down, we can use it for some good, and I might even give part of it for my tithe. When the command in the Old Testament was, when you come across an idol, destroy it. Remember what Moses did with the golden calf? He didn't melt it down and say, think of all the good we can do with all this gold. He ground it into dust and spread it on the water and made the people drink it. And he says here, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Well, how does that look today? Well, maybe you know that we shouldn't worship idols or shouldn't worship God by idols, but you go to Goodwill. And you see a little Buddha statue there that looks very nice. And it's only a dollar. And you think, if I just buy that, I can sell it on eBay for a hundred. That could be a literal way that you are doing this. <laughs> and of course, there's other ways too. You who know, you who know clearly that we are to follow the commands of Scripture as our guide to how we worship. Are you going to go buy a smoke machine? I could go on. I won't go on. But all of this is pointing just to the utter hypocrisy that mankind can have. You need to know this, that it is, it is not knowing the law, preaching the law that honors God. It is obedience to the law. But in all of this, what does this do? It convicts us. I hope it convicts us. If it doesn't convict you, pray that it would. Pray that it would. And then what does it say in, in verse 3? Look at this. Look at this. Verse 23. You who say... No, verse... Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I got it. I got it. I'm back on track. Okay. Verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a quote out of the Greek version of Isaiah 52, 5. And, and what he is saying here is something that's obvious to everybody. It's obvious to people inside the church. Sometimes it's even more obvious to people outside the church that when someone claims to know and follow God and their life does not match it, it dishonors God. When you say to yourself, I am saved by grace alone, and so it doesn't matter if I joke around with my buddies at work in the ways that they joke around, those buddies at work are looking at you and saying, as they smile and laugh with you, they are saying in their hearts, his Jesus doesn't matter. There is no reason for me to turn and to put my faith in Jesus because look at what this person is doing. Oh, one of the easiest ways you can do that is with foul language. You think it's no big deal because you're from New Jersey. One of the easiest ways to signal to the world my faith in Christ makes no difference in my life is just to let it fly. So many things. And you know what the world says? One of the number one excuses that you will get from people who don't want to trust in Jesus is the church is full of hypocrites. Now by God's grace... I don't think this church is full of hypocrites. And God has given us actual instructions of what to do when someone is found to be in a hypocritical style of life. 
That's why church membership exists. That's why church membership needs to be meaningful and not just a list of names of people who one time used to go here. That's why church membership is something where we are to actually hold one another accountable, where Jesus has actually given us steps if we find out that our brother is in sin, is stumbling, to go to him one-on-one and to seek to restore him and to go through these steps of Matthew 18. God has set it up so that we are not to dishonor his name with hypocrisy among us. And if you yourself are in hypocrisy, the best thing to do is to confess your sin and to trust in Christ with that sin and to know that if we confess our sin that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And if you know that your brother or your sister is in that hypocritical place, the church has an interest in that for not just the sake of the sinner. It is for the sake of the sinner. We want to pursue the lost sheep but also for the sake of the glory of the name of God. This is what it says. Let me read it to you again. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. This is not just about you. This is about the name of our holy creator, redeemer, God. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 36. Same concept. God says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, which by, by which he means about to act to save you. But it is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Do you know what God says that he is going to do for a hypocritical people there? Save them. That's good news. It doesn't mean every hypocrite is going to be saved, but you know what he said there? He said, for the sake of my name, I'm going to save you not because of something that you have done that has shown how great you are or what a great servant you are for me. But even though you have dishonored my name, even though you have been the very one who is the reason why lost people are out there saying they're all hypocrites. Hypocrite, come to Jesus. He will save you for the sake of his glorious name. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. I want to remind you that Paul, the very person, the very apostle that God is using to write the letter of the Romans, was a former Pharisee. Probably not one who was in the crowd at the time of the crucifixion, and yet a Pharisee nonetheless. He was among the very hypocrites that he is talking about here. He is not giving this paragraph or this part of the the book of Romans as some sort of an anti-Semitic rant. He is pro-Semite. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He says that he would give his own soul to save his fellow Jews if it were at all possible. And he himself was in the position that he's speaking about. He is the very hypocrite that he's talking about. He's the one who needed to rely on Christ and to throw away and count as loss and garbage, as he says in Philippians 3, every bit of reliance on the law that he had. Here's the way that he puts it about his own story in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says this, as a formerly hyper-religious man, sinners among whom I am the foremost. Jesus didn't just come to save sinners who know that they're sinners. Jesus came to save sinners who were pretending that they weren't. 
He came to save hypocrites. Jesus has the same gospel, the same good news for the people who are openly immoral that he has for the hypocrite. It is the same gospel that saves people from fleshly immorality. That same one will save you from dead works, as the Bible puts it, relying in a dead hypocritical way on your religious works. That same gospel that saved the prodigal son who wasted everything, that same gospel will save his jealous brother who didn't like to see his prodigal brother received back into the family. There is good news for you if you are among those who are openly immoral and you know it. It is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And there's good news for those who are among the hypocritical which is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Trust in him, and he will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, including hypocrisy. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, grateful that you have set your love upon us from before the foundation of the world. You've sent Christ to die for sinners like us. God, I thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, the only man who ever lived who had not a a single hint or action or thought even of hypocrisy in his whole life. And I thank you that he bore the curse on the cross that, that was deserved by everyone who relies on the law and by every sinner. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to receive Christ, not to rely on the law, not to rely on family status or what we would claim to be or boasting in God, but to rely completely on the finished work of Christ, who is our Savior, crucified and risen from the dead. Father, I pray for us who believe. God, grant us by your grace uh, not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered from evil, not to walk in hypocrisy, but to walk in the light. And God, I pray for those who are lost in their sins, whether they know it right now or whether they think that they're not and they are lost in hypocrisy. I pray, God, that you would save them by that same beautiful grace and good news of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.